0: She looks like we'll set up uh, I've been on mute for a minute Because my dogs are going crazy currently uh, As my girlfriend's just coming back in the house Nice,
1: love so. that Welcome home, girlfriend Of course the dogs are excited
0: Uh-huh She's only be gone a, an hour and a half But yeah they, they, they have to act like it's been a week I think for a dog It is a week, you
1: know uh, That's how it always seems for me with my pets too
0: yeah, yeah. Every now and then I get sent a text, a little picture. It's just my dog sticking her head out the window. And she just is there most of the night until I come home. Just feel bad. Like, about at the same time, it's like, come on, get a life. you got better things to do.
1: Well, hey, if they're going crazy, you know, um let me be the, the first to say this week, you know, welcome uh, to Taking Stock. I'm so glad to have uh this Great opportunity to talk again about the history of part of our financial markets. This week, we're going to be talking about the birth of the depository trust, you know, a, a incredibly ubiquitous, gigantic, self-regulating organization uh, at the heart of the American financial system as it operates today. And I'm excited to get into it and into the context, uh, you know, that led to its founding, that led to its support at the time, uh, but before we do, some quick updates uh, from me. I am so excited um, to share about the YDRS database. That thanks to some incredible support from our volunteer community and from some really dedicated people, uh, the investor relations section of the database is over fifty percent complete now. Fifty point five five percent to be to be uh, exact. So that is just incredible to me. That's over five thousand companies that are in the system, that are supported by our YDRS investor relation outreach tool. And uh, so that is going to allow just an absolute ton of people that might want to start talking to their investor relations boards. They don't know how to do it. Maybe they want to encourage some more DRS information release. Well, go ahead over to YDRS.org and you're going to be easily able to do so.
0: Yeah, hopefully that kind of access, uh, is going to allow for a lot more, uh, kind of communication direct with issuers because, uh, yeah, it's not been so easy to find all of these investor relation, uh, contacts, emails, uh, things like that. So, uh, yeah, taking that, uh, hurdle out of the equation, I think is going to be, uh, very important for, for kind of democratizing that access. Um, and I think it's going to be helpful for, as we keep filling out the, the database, there's going to be so much more information that can be used for so many tools uh, once it's all there. And, and it's all publicly viewable and accessible for, for people to take a look at and see if there's any ways that they could make use of the information, which I think is amazing. Just giving it away for free because that, that's the way it should be. Um no, we've lost Chives a little bit. Let me I need to invite him back up as a speaker. Um, and uh, for, uh, I've put up in the nest, there's um, a link to YDRS.org, uh, an article covering the birth of uh, the, the Depository Trust, um, which is what we'll be going over today. And then the other link that I've shared as well, and this will all be in the show notes um, on all the podcast apps and everything. Uh, a link to our link tree, which has links to literally everything the websites, our socials, and uh any podcast platform you might want to listen to this or previous episodes on, um, but also a link directly to our lemmy, which uh hit one thousand uh users uh or subscribers i, I I'm not sure how, what the official word for it is, but yeah, we've hit a thousand people uh this past week, which is amazing to see it continue to grow interactions are growing and things like that. People starting to have more and more conversations in the comments. So, um, yeah, I, I'm going to try and get back in there myself. I'm not much of a content maker or a meme master or anything like that, but, uh, hopefully, yeah, we'll see you guys in there. Um, I appreciate your bringing that up. I, I can't
1: believe I forgot to mention that. I'm, I'm glad you did, but to give a bit more context about the numbers on the Lemmy. So, we just hit a 1,000 subscribers to that DRS uh, GME-specific um, community on Lemmy. That's kind of the replacement for the Reddit board, which was taken down. Um, we also have, you know, Lemmy's all made a whole bunch of interconnected nodes. So we run our own instance so nobody can take us down again. And our specific DRS instance has 730 users. So, the other 270 users, those are coming in. They made their account elsewhere, but they've still subscribed to and participate in our DRS community. To explain that a bit more.
0: Yeah. And if anyone's a bit unfamiliar with Lemmy, um, like you can have, anyone can have their own server and, and operate things however they want. Uh, we've got uh, the kind of base Lemmy, which is very similar to a Reddit like experience. Other servers have different setups because uh, it's completely open source. Like some people have removed downvotes completely. Uh, some people make interacting with posts or parts of their community a bit more restricted. So uh, it, it's an interesting platform uh, and, and completely open source, which I, yeah, I think just makes it stronger in the long run. But um, uh, yeah, I think um, that's pretty much it for all our updates. Um we've got someone who wants to come up uh, and speak uh, but uh, we might leave that until later so we can do some Q's and A's
1: yeah we're definitely uh, interested to hear from listeners but it'll probably be in maybe half an hour or so after we've just run through the article content got that historical context in
0: yeah so if you could, you can bear with us we'll, we'll get to you eventually um but yeah, Charles, if you want to kick us off with, uh, uh, why and how the, the, the depository, depository trust, aka the DTC came to be.
1: Well, absolutely. You no, thank you. And, um, for those who want to follow along, I know Vivek mentioned we've got this article in the show notes here. Um, the article is called seeding ownership, why almost all publicly traded stock belongs to one company. And so that there, uh, seed, uh, is, is kind of a pun on CD that we're about to get into and, uh, seed to mean to <laughs> relinquish possession of. Um, don't know if that was intentional, but let's hop right into it because, you know, I don't think it's mentioned in this article, but, uh, this year is actually the 50 year anniversary of when the DTC was founded. It was came together in 1973. So, uh, and, you know, started out as a, uh, ambitious solution to a major problem and has been incredibly successful. Uh, as I mentioned in the, in the opener, it's, uh, ubiquitous now to the U.S. financial markets. And let's hop right into that. You know, uh, before uh, that historical context, I just want to talk a bit about wh- how it's so ubiquitous in the current day. So for listeners who might not be aware, uh, they can understand better about why it's important to understand this uh, niche and often Undiscussed element of the market. When an individual investor decides to purchase shares in a broker, uh, their name is recorded by the broker as a beneficial owner of those shares. Uh, we've gone over beneficial ownership a lot in the past, uh, especially in our episodes about you know, what is ownership. But the main key, uh, key question at the moment would be: you know, if you're the beneficial owner when you're holding through a broker, uh, who's the real owner? Who's the actual named owner uh, of that? Asset, and that's going to be this CD and Co private company. Uh, CD and Co is essentially the nominee name through which the depository trust company, DTC, uh, holds control of investments. And fortunately, you know, 1973, this was back in an era where they still named things uh, in such a way that were a bit more intuitive about what they actually were. Uh, The depository trust is simply you know a, a single place where assets are deposited um, for the collective trust of market participants and even CD and Co comes from central depository the CE from central, the DE from depository. so uh, it's it's fairly straightforward naming there and easy to wrap your head around once you know that etymology. Uh, now we can kind of take a hop back to the late 60s. Um, or perhaps I'll, I'll even start by, by going back even a bit earlier and all the way back, let's call it 1602. Um, I have, I cite an article in the YDRS page, uh, that talks about how in March of 1602, the Dutch eats India company. And of course, folks learned about them. I'm sure in history classes, they were the first company to ever conduct what would eventually be called an IPO and allowed the public to buy shares in their business. And for 350 plus years, following that initial groundbreaking uh, decision, when you bought a share in a company, it was gonna be physically delivered to you as a share certificate. And that, uh, well, that essentially meant that the settlement time was nothing like what might you might be used to today as an investor, where you buy something and it two days later, it's settled in your account or, you know, they're talking about moving to T- T1, uh, T1 transaction times in the next couple of years. At that at that time, certainly in 1602 and even in the 1960s, you were still talking about a multi-week uh, settlement period where if you, you know, lived in a, a place far away from the seller, far away from the issuer, then those certificates are going to, are going to have to be uh, securely transported uh, to wherever you are. And, even if you were operating through a broker the brokers all were on wall street that's you know kind of how wall street came to be was these brokers would crop up all across the street from each other do business for their clients and you had an absolute ton of people running back and forth across the uh, across wall street carrying stacks and briefcases uh, of different paper certificates to try to settle trades but uh, ultimately it still took multiple days uh, multiple weeks and sometimes to uh actually accomplish that settlement um, they weren't even open the full day or the full week at that time you know we really was we <laughs> I want to stress how much paperwork was involved and as the um, as more and more people of lower economic classes you know more middle class folks started to get inv- involved in investing that was uh, only just g- going to massively increase the amount of paperwork that there was, um, you know. So in this uh, late 60s time, that we're talking about settlement times were T plus five in the best of cases, um, but there was a major need to take a lot of time for bookkeeping and auditing. And as trading volume continued to increase every year, it, there was just more and more of you know these failures to deliver on time and. You know, we'll do a whole episode about failures to deliver at a later date, absolutely. But for now, just know that if you aren't able to successfully deliver the security in the window, then that's what's called an FTD or a failure to deliver. And that was uh, becoming an issue through this massive paperwork process. So in 1968, there was such an incredible backlog that the uh, New York Stock Exchange closed every Wednesday starting from the middle of the year uh, through the end of that year. And, you know, that was – so they're only trading 80% of the amount of time that they wanted to. Uh, at that point, it became clear that there needed to be some kind of major adjustment to how the uh, settlement system was working, to how the market system was working, and discussions began to try to start to figure that out.
0: It took- that? Are, there's something I want to jump in with there because there's uh- – uh, an interesting, it wasn't just the fact that they were failing trades, uh, during this paperwork crisis. Uh, but I, I did a little bit, I found another article that expanded some bits and apparently, oh, awesome. um, like thieves, uh, were exploiting the chaos that was going on and organized crime syndicates made off with more than $400 million worth of securities during this paperwork crisis. Um, so they were kind of really up on it on all ends. Um, and yeah, they were at that breaking point. Um, so we're like, right, we need to make this radical change. Um, and, uh, as you were saying that talks began to happen, but it took them until 1973, I think, to actually find and then implement the solution. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, it, if this, um, crisis, it started in 67, so they, it, they were having these failed trades um, and everything like that way before uh, June of 68 when they finally took these Wednesdays off. So they, they were yeah long, long time under this pressure. Um, but uh, the reason why they, they didn't have to close for Wednesdays from 1969 until 1973 was that a massive bear market came in. And, uh, basically the, the amount of trades dropped considerably. Brokerage revenues dropped, uh, precipitously as this, uh, article puts it. Um, and it left a lot of brokers unable to cover their costs. And by the end of, uh, 1970, nearly one sixth of the nation's brokerages were forced to merge or liquidate or go public. So there was like a slight monopolization going on during this time as well as working towards this central depository. Uh, like format, ma- uh, framework. Um, and yeah, there's even more long term, uh, impacts of the paper paperwork crisis. Um, because, uh, as they realized even then that, oh, yeah, our, um, uh, doing it all by paper standard is not quick enough. So some brokerages actually, uh, picked up, um, uh, what, mainframe computers, which I, I think back then were like the size of a room. Uh, and they were like huge and demanded a lot of management and maintenance. Um So again, it forced that uh, slight monopolization. Only those kind of brokerages that could afford these mainframe computers were the ones kind of staying ahead of the curve. Um, and this was before then when they finally were like, right, get the central depository in. And again, we're going to use computers here like way before personal computing was a thing, um they knew it had to be an electronic solution um so it's it's interesting to see that kind of ramp up and development from the brokerage side. They started using computers to try and cut corners uh i mean it meant it started putting people out of jobs back then um, and then uh yeah uh post the paperwork crisis. Uh, and, and even after this, the D- D- DTC was, uh, founded, um, the, uh, kind of costs and everything, uh, um, um, pressures and stuff from secondary markets, um, which, uh, launched the, the NASDAQ, for example, um, and, uh, the, the uh, where was it oh yeah here we go so it also encouraged uh diversification within the brokers so before it used to be you'd, you'd have a one firm that would specialize in underwriting or commodities trading uh or retirement for 401ks things like that all of that started uh to come underneath one roof uh and one single firm um so it, it was kind of the death of a lot of competition i think in the markets. Um, kind of very quietly killed off a lot of this stuff. But, uh, yeah, e- each, uh, expansion in turn required more technology, people and capital, which led most of the surviving Wall Street par- partnerships to merge or go public from, uh, Donaldson, Lufkin and Genrette, uh, in s- 1970 to Alex Brown and Sons in 19- 1997 and Goldman Sachs in 99. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, even, even Goldman Sachs got impacted by it and, and they seem to ride out just about anything on their masses of wealth. But, um, yeah, it is crazy. Just this one, one little issue that, well, I say little, one massive issue that came to a head in, in the late sixties is, is still impacting markets 30 years later, over 30 years later. Um, but yeah, I think, um, Back to, to where Charles was uh, talking about the the research began. And they were like, "Yeah, let's figure this out. Let's how can we make this incredibly simplified uh, and and more efficient and much quicker." Uh, so I,
1: I I really appreciate that additional context there. I mean, it's incredible to think and makes perfect sense that there would be massive crime. Uh, trying to get a hold of these paper certificates as they're being carted around, um, you know, across the country or across, uh, across Wall Street. Uh, I typed it into an inflation calculated calculator out of curiosity and 400 million in 68 would be, uh, over three and a half billion today. So that's quite a lot of theft.
0: Yeah. That's a lot of money. That's, and that's, uh...
1: uh, so of course. <laughs> they were desperate to try to figure out a working system. And ultimately the depository trust, uh you know, came to fruition in 1973 uh, with the main goal of facilitating what would, what would become electronic purchase and settlement of securities. Uh, so just as Bivik mentioned, that took advantage of recent advancements in computing. It, you know, although a lot of smaller brokers maybe were not going to be able to, um, you know, move to advance that same technologically technological level, these centralized major depositories were certainly going to be able to. And on paper, you know, pun intended maybe, I'd say it seems like a fantastic idea at first. Um, here's the kind of how it works in a nutshell. You take all those certificates and you put them in one room in one building. And then everybody that had any certificates, you make an account for them. And then you're going to say, okay, you know, if uh, person A wants to trade with person B, then they just got to let me know. I'll make the uh, change in the computer system here. Uh, We can change the names on, on the paper back in the room, but there's not going to be any need to run anything anywhere because it's all here in the same room already. And uh, it's going to stay here under the same roof. Trading can continue. Settlement times can massively increase uh, or decrease, I mean, to just T plus two, uh, after, you know, that they were able to prove the system was working and, uh, it cleared the crowded backlog of documents and paperwork, um, circulating on the trade floor, simplified the whole process in an immense way. And the only, uh, you know, the only caveat to all of these incredible positives was that technically all of these shares now had to be controlled and editable by a single entity. And that single entity was, of course, uh, the DTC. So initially for the first 20 plus years that the DTC was operating, it was operating, uh, as a well, I shouldn't say just for the first twenty years, actually, because this is still true today. Um, the DTC is a self-regulating organization, which means that it doesn't—it's not part of the government. Um, it's not directly under the legislative influence of some specific governmental body. It, it operates sort of under its own rules, and uh, that's a whole other topic. Definitely encourage folks to read more about SROs. Um, it's another uh, another day, but FINRA is another huge run that but the DTC is uh, regulated by its own members. And so the DTC members kind of have a shared responsibility, a shared um, interest in making sure that the settlement is happening properly, and that uh, the single ownership of all these assets is not being abused. Uh, so in theory, you know, they're kind of uh, keeping each other in check. Uh, through that system. Um, jury's out, I suppose, as to whether or not that's a great system, but it certainly worked at the time. And um, ultimately, though, in order to streamline things even further, it, in 1996, the DTC founded CD & Co., which is a separate legal entity from the DTC and uh, formed a partnership with it where essentially CD operates as a a you know, single named legal owner for all the shares in the vaults. And this is, this, the idea of that was to simplify the process even further because now you didn't need to worry about going into this massive uh, building full of share certificates just to cross out one name and write another. You could just do the computer system part and leave the gigantic building alone. So it was another cost saving measure, another time saving measure which came at the sacrifice of even more, uh, access to individual ownership, distributed ownership and, um, transparency for investors and for a member brokers.
0: It's sort of, sort of the beginning and the end of investor rights, you might say. Yeah, I'd
1: say that you probably could say that, um, you know, for those that are curious about a larger breakdown, we definitely go into a lot of detail in the ownership episodes we've done earlier on, but essentially, you know, when you invest through that broker, you aren't the direct owner of the share and your broker isn't either. Uh, the broker that has, is either a DTC member themselves or is partnered through one and, you know, their uh, ownership is reflected through an internal ledger of members that the DTC operates, but the owner of the share ends up being CD the entire time. And so that, again, is an incredible streamlining and efficiency move. Uh, it's really a brilliant idea, coming at it purely from a problem-solving perspective of the paperwork crisis that um, that we were experiencing. Uh, and there's no way that they could have predicted at that time the advances in computing technology. That would allow us today to have access to things like, um, you know, the general access to book entry, which as a reminder, book entry just means an electronically recorded share, uh, and access to something like DRS, which allows you to have named ownership directly on a ledger with the company's transfer agent as opposed to uh, having to go through this, um, legacy system. So that's an you know can be an alternative way to solve the paperwork, but these guys didn't know that was going to be an option all the way back then, right?
0: Yeah. I mean I doubt they would have even known anything like the iPhone would have been around today doing all <laughs> that it can do. It, but yeah, it's it like it definitely not. makes sense in, in the time of stamps and paper and everything being tangible uh and has to be put in your hands to be received. But um yeah with the advances uh, advances of computer technology it just seems so much more outdated and uh, and ill fit for for what we can achieve with with today's technology i mean or, or even from technology from 10 20 years ago um the fact that we still have t plus 2 is quite surprising um or even t plus 4 for money transactions but uh but yeah i th- i guess with the DTC, they were hoping to treat it like a bank where you deposit all the money here, we play around with the pool, and then through that we can help you facil- f- facilitate what you need and we'll let you have some of your money back when you ask for it, uh, but we'll hold on to the rest. Don't you worry about it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think in, in today's uh, technological era, like w- we don't need that anymore. Uh, we can actually just have self-custody of these stocks and still trade them with with just as much ease as if we were holding them uh, beneficially or not even really holding them because you're holding uh, an entitlement to them, not even a direct uh, access to them. It's, um, yeah, the difference between uh, being a shareholder and an entitlement holder is quite large. And uh, it's something that brokers are very quiet about. But, yeah, I digress. Well, I say I digress. It's all pretty on topic with us. We're all about ownership. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think... Uh, is that everything we wanted to cover with this article? I think we've...
1: Uh, I, I wanted to mention just a, a couple other quick things that um, the article doesn't cover, but uh, I wanted to quickly mention. You know, so one thing that's really difficult about how we've you know we have these alternatives now, but they're relatively new compared to the system held with the DTC and with CD and Co having uh, so much share ownership. Um, you know it's fairly ingrained at this point. And it's I want to make very clear the degree to which this monopoly exists uh, as far as the share ownership goes. So, uh, one thing that's a bit interesting is that the, uh, DTC had for, uh, quite some time, they would release yearly, uh, updates on the amount of holdings that they had in terms of like the amount of shares on the market. And so I, I find this personally very interesting. Um, they were releasing it every year. Uh, you know, every year I should say they released kind of like a, um, Company update, you know, all sorts of information in this sort of filing, but uh, every year up until 1998, they uh, would mention what percentage of overall uh, publicly traded stock in the market was held through CD and Co. In 1998, they uh, said in their filing that they owned 83% of all issued stock in fungible bulk in their central vault. 83% and uh, that was the last year that they said a specific percentage. They have said in years since 1998, uh, pretty much every year that that percentage has gone up, but they've never been specific about it after that. So that is an interesting thought. Uh, of course the direct registration, um, started up as an option, uh, soon after that, but only really became something in the public consciousness. So, It's still niche even now, but in our circles, growing advocacy effort in the last couple of years. So I I very much wonder what percentage they're at today, and I wonder if we one day perhaps can start to see that downtrend. Uh, I'm certainly going to be on the lookout at the end of this year to see if the language is the same about the percentage having increased again. Uh, I just kind of wanted to touch on that. Uh, It's a pretty fascinating statistic. If you go on to the, at least at the moment, the CD&Co wiki page has a link to that 98 filing. If you're curious about that, we could probably include it in the show notes as well. I don't see why not. I'll shoot you over a link uh, for that now since I have it open. Beyond that, yeah, I mean, that was the main stuff that I wanted to cover from this specific article. And I'd be happy, you know, I, I know someone, I don't know who it was, had their hand raised earlier. Um, if you wanted to pop up and had a question now, if you're still here, we would very glad to, to hear what that
0: was. Yeah, they're still, still requested, so I can bring them up now. Uh, I see they've just been, uh, I, I was silent just then, um, cause I was just finding another link for another article we can, we can start to go into, but I think this is, this is a good moment we can stop for a little question or a little, uh, audience interaction. Uh, Great. so I'll just bring them up. Hopefully you're still listening and you know you're being brought up. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I've seen some, comments from you so yeah cool you're on what's up john Good
2: afternoon and just to make sure i have everything right and i understand privacy so first name by all means it's bibic and then is that is that who who exactly am i talking to here you got bibic and chives is chives two people yeah. or what's the story chives is one person okay okay I, I've never used this platform before, so I completely apologize if I have been doing the wrong etiquette on Oh, no,
1: that's okay. We we don't use it that okay. much either.
2: <laughs> okay. So it's Chives and Bibic. Okay. Awesome. Well, great to meet you both. Uh my name is John Wooten at Block Transfer. I learned about why the YDRS movement about two weeks ago and I put a request, uh, a feedback on the site and Bibic reached out to me. Uh, just just recently and said it might be a good idea to stop by. And since he uh, that was last Friday and just been learning a little bit more about exactly your whole. And I have to say, I am un- very impressed Uh what, what you, your team, everyone here is doing it at, at the whole movement is very impressive. Vivek and Chives you guys thank you man yeah appreciate it are you kidding me this is so important and and just putting the 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 information out there in an unbelievably easy to digest way i can't imagine how much work goes into to to all the publications that you have and the piece that you got in front of gary it's unbelievable i mean it's really amazing may i ask have you two been around since the start
0: more or less. I, I came on, I think, maybe just a bit after Chives, but like I was already putting together information of like what brokers were and weren't allowing to DRS. And then that's how I kind of got linked up. Um But yeah, the website has gone through so many kind of iterations uh, over the last couple of years, like where we've been refining that process of like oh yeah okay this is this is kind of good but actually we can make it even more accessible so anyone like from joe public can just rock up and start digesting all of this because it's such a massive topic um so we yeah we we thought we were doing a good job and then more people would come in and give feedback and now we're taking that funnel approach of like starting really wide and really basic and then there's lots of little shoots to go down and, and get more niche and detailed if if people kind of get drawn in by it because uh like i think for all of us here it's all, all self-directed learning um like there's no other way we could have found out about this stuff so yeah we're, we're hoping other people come in with that and find that same passion that's um, right i love
1: being able to provide more resources that that we didn't have uh several years ago now, certainly the what happened with GameStop, I guess you'd say air quotes, activated me as a financial advocate, learning about DRS and ownership is what really got me going. My passion is ownership. And I think all of society is going through a crisis of ownership right now in so many ways, too many ways to get into. And uh, I feel that this is such an important thing to talk about, not just for American investors and DRS specifically, but ownership advocacy for other financial markets, other asset markets, uh, all across the spectrum. And that's certainly the type of holistic uh, off the thing that we want to offer. And, you know, thanks again for reaching out. and really appreciated your mail. And thanks for stopping by here again in your kind words.
2: Certainly. I just wanted to clear a couple of things up that came up in the communication from Bibic and also uh, through just correspondences and all the other previous uh whatever talking stock episodes um and and also i'm on your team i am like with you guys i'm an investor at heart and I, i i only learned about sort of the whole transfer agent industry just to give you a little background on me i came into finance from working a minimum wage job at subway and i just wanted to do something something more So I quit my job to trade stocks full time. And in the first two weeks in a paper account, I made more than the entire year prior. And that was I was in high school. I quit uh, when summer started. So for the rest of the summer, all I did was day trade stocks. And when I was day trading, I I wasn't able to replicate the profits from the paper account. It was like, what is this? Why is there this weird slippage in this one second thing that gets me stopped out and and looking back, of course, it's HFTs and now you understand exactly what the problems were and what the, everything that went wrong. But at the time I had no clue. Um, and, and after that I got into crypto. That was 2017. And, and since then I ran a small family fund for a number of years. And it was at that fund that I, I learned about transfer agents. May I ask Bibbic and Chives how you both came across? Was it, was it through GME that you understood? C- Cause transfer agents are pretty kind of down, down at the bottom of of most people's, you know, they're the bottom of the market and not a lot of people are familiar with them. In fact, while I was pitching the idea for block transfer to hundreds of college educated professors and the students during, you know, early on, I actually only met two people that knew what a transfer agent was. One of them was a C-level executive at Intercontinental Exchange. And the other one was just an everyday senior investor who had to spend three weeks getting a medallion stamp, this like weird antiquated bank paperwork you have to do to transfer these direct registered shares. And, and I couldn't believe it. It was, I, I was unbelievable. And so I was just wondering how, how you both or the whole group or everyone got into this, into this sphere.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for a, a lot, if not all of us, it was uh, kind of GameStop and the community there that uh, kind of stumbled across uh, Suzanne Trimbath, Dr. Trimbath's uh, work and her book Naked, Short and Greedy, um, because she worked with the DTC and helped set up uh, the DRS and then kind of did a lot of similar stuff in, in other markets. Um and like it kind of surfaced a couple times and most people didn't really take note and were like oh that's yeah archaic whatever that's probably not what we want um and for me as a non-us investor i was like oh that's just for americans there's no way i could ever (laughs) drs like surely not uh and then yeah it just kept coming up and then some people really latched on and then started really digging in and uh we, we learn more and more about just, yeah, how wide that gap is between ownership with holding through a transfer agent uh, or, you know, holding directly on the ledger versus holding through a broker. And uh, the more we read, the more we were just blown away. And uh, yeah, in fact, we even we know a, a college pr- professor ourselves in America who had never heard of drs and he's he's been teaching for for a very long time and it had never come across his desk once wow. so yeah uh, i never, like i keep we we keep wondering like is this too good to be true but then um
2: because
0: <laughs> uh, it's like yeah this is the secret right this is the secret they don't want you to know about like all those weird clickbait ad articles say <laughs> uh but then yeah it, the systems are so Kind of archaic. They're a bit old school, and in in the nineties, that it's like, okay, it, maybe it's not too good to be true, but this is this is our best situation that we can get right now uh, without fundamentally changing the whole system. Um, and it, it yeah it seems to return some actual supply and demand uh, to to the market, which has been sorely lacking for for god knows how long now. Um, but yeah, uh, we we've had even uh, a guest on not long ago, uh, Bill Bill Pulte. He was saying like, yeah, this is great, but it could be so much better. Like we we need to improve on this and and maybe go another way. And uh, like we'd stumbled across your black block transfer site um, a little while ago, and we were like, oh, this exists already. <laughs> uh, we, we just couldn't, couldn't believe it. And then, um, yeah, we got sidetracked by so many things. There's all sorts of dramas in the community and things like that, uh, as there always is in the internet. Um, uh, but yeah, we, we've, we've been meaning to reach out for ages. So we, we really appreciated you reaching out the other day. And, uh, yeah, I didn't re- recognize it was your name at first. I'm, I'm so bad with names. Uh,
1: yeah, so- now I see the little BP in his logo too. <laughs> yes.
0: It all makes sense now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so is is block transfer uh, like, so it, it's like a transfer agent using the blockchain kind of thing?
2: Yeah, we've been registered with the SEC for a little over two and a half years now. And it's all based on a patent that I wrote at Georgia Tech on, as you suggested, using blockchain for the transfer agent. But more Than that, it's really based off of a concept pioneered by the SEC in 1967 called the Transfer Agent Depository. And the Transfer Agent Depository was originally proposed just before DTCC was formed and, you know, it was DTC at the time and they held the, you know, there was a long story, different clearinghouses consolidated to a monopoly, I'm sure you guys are familiar. The idea was that instead of having, so the problem is brokers, okay? And I want to circle back now. I put some comments in earlier when you were talking about the origination of the depository trust. The big problem that investors have faced since the Vockler company or the East Indies company. And the thing about the East Indies company that most people leave out is that you could actually originally transfer shares on the books of the company and that's what this whole story boils down to it boils down to the transfer of stock so when the company first went public there was actually only one hour of trading in the square in the headquarter area uh jesus been a while and the, it was only an hour because it's limited volume and so what would happen is investors would meet there once a day they would bring cash Or they would bring their checks and they would negotiate verbally. And then at the end of the hour, they would walk two blocks down the street to the company's secretary. And there they would have two board members sign off on a stock transfer. They'd have a notary stamp a stock transfer and they'd pay about the equivalent of $200 in today. And that was the original stock market for nearly 100 years to that it was all based off of this idea okay well book entry transfers are hard okay it was it was hard to walk two blocks it was hard to get the notary every time it was hard to pay the money it was hard to have the board directors there it was a very complicated stock transfer process and so because of that the first brokers not first i'm sorry What, what they did is they started trading the first stock futures contracts so instead of actually transferring the registered ownership of the shares from your name to mine or vice versa. When we made a trade, everyone just signed contracts and they said, I owe you these shares on this date and you owe me these shares. And they were stock futures. So they had like, you know, expiration dates and rates and everything you expect with the futures contract. But the problem was when these contracts came to fruition, expiration, guess what happened? Somebody says they're going to buy the stock and if it goes up, then certainly they buy the stock and they make money on it because that's how a forward futures works. But if the stock, you know, if if they lose money in the contract and it it comes due, it's not like they were pre-funded. You pay it at the end of it. You you basically just paid a gain or a loss and you settled it out at the end. So when these contracts came due, a bunch of people lost money because the stock price was, it was pretty wild at the start. It was actually kind of interesting. And everyone that lost money just left Amsterdam. Okay. So not everybody. Okay. There, there are different, different levels of, of what happened. And certainly some people paid, but a large amount of people just defaulted on the contracts and didn't pay you know, they went bankrupt. They left Amsterdam or there was this weird law at the time in Amsterdam that made short sales illegal. And so they took it to the courts and the courts said that you actually didn't lose money, even though you lost money. It's a long story, very complicated. It's not too complicated. That's pretty much most of it, and that was the introduction of the biggest problem that faces financial markets across the world, and that's counterparty risk. That risk that the person you make a trade with isn't going to pay you, or you know, it's, they're not going to settle the trade, right? And so in Amsterdam, and I'll wrap it up here, they basically the first brokers came into existence and it was just the most trusted wealthy individuals. And so if you wanted to trade stocks, these these original stockbrokers, they had like special private clubs at night. So you would go to their special private club at night. And if they let you in, then, then the guy knew you or if there was, they were all men, but I don't mean to, (laughs) but if they knew you, then they would let you do a trade with them. And they would sort of act as the central custodian. They do all the, and everyone would just settle it on the contract. Again, there were no actual stock transfers on the books of the Dutch East Indies company. And, 200 years later, 400 years later. I mean, that is exactly the same thing that we see today. Nowadays, if you want to transfer on the books of the company at a legacy agent, like I referenced earlier, the medallion. You've got to go to the bank physically. You've got to show them your IDs. You have to show them your broker statements. You have to show them all these things. And if you want to trade with someone, you need to have their information. It's this whole long, complicated process. You get mail that to the transfer agent. It's unbelievable. It takes weeks to transfer these stocks on the books of the company. And the transfers are so important because the transfer is what facilitates trading. So that's why the brokers have prospered because there's been no way to reliably get rid of the counterparty risk and also the transaction cost of the transfers for decades, for centuries. And that obviously is is sort of where the the DTC came into play. Is that all the brokers were just you know making things a little more efficient, digitizing it. You know that's how they get there. Transaction costs from hundreds of dollars to nothing, except for now you have PFOF, and it's a huge problem, and everyone understands that here. So that's the problem that we're solving, is the transfers. Because if you can make the transfers between the investors on the company books incredibly easy, all of a sudden, you get rid of counterparty risk. Because it's all self-custody, like you guys are familiar with. It's, it's held in your name. It's your stock. It's not, it's, you know, it's not a situation where Dole Foods is gonna go bank, is not, I'm sorry, Dole Foods is gonna get bought out in 2012 and a third of the investors aren't gonna get paid because the shares they held in their broker weren't real shares. Uh, stuff like that. So that's what we're doing with block transfer and that's where the blockchain comes in is you just use the blockchain. This is what our whole patent is on. You use blockchain. As the actual master security holder file, as the ledger on the company's books for their investors, and so it's all super transparent, super easy to implement. It's all digitized, automated, and done at the highest efficiencies of Web three. Does that make sense, Bibic and Chives? Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and really terrific breakdown. I mean, not only as a pitch for the for the product, service, and patent that you've developed, but an explanation of why the fungible bulk and liquidity provided by the legacy system was so important is so important and is still so tantalizing and appealing to so many investors today. Uh, The fact of the matter is transfer agents as they operate now pale in comparison when it comes to every single one of those uh, major trading benefits. And if we were able, you know, that's, you've shown that it's possible, it sounds, through your patent, through the application so far. And if we were then able to convince uh, more issuers to try this service, more uh, traders to try this service and engage directly with each other uh, in a secure way, then you have best of both worlds completely eclipsed the depository trust at that time. And uh, really, I don't think there's anyone on this call who would not love to see that happen
0: absolutely like for for me um like i never quite understood i was like yeah blockchain is definitely a fantastic solution but they then like blockchain will kind of remove all middlemen uh and i was like so how do transfer agents even fit into that equation but you've kind of answered that question for me now uh so i'm seeing that a bit clearer like they there is still need for, for something to do the transfer and record that and uh make sure it's all happening properly um, and then, like, I do you guys have any, uh, clients currently? Are you, are you working with any public companies? And then how does that work when you're, you're managing this ledger? And then it's, there's also CD and co that need to take a good chunk of those shares.
2: Yeah. We got our inaugural client in June. They're a private social media company in South Carolina. And we completed their SEC registration with them in July and finished onboarding their investors in September. And right now you can actually see their investors anonymously, of course. You can see them on the blockchain. You can see their shares on the blockchain. You see everything about uh, the share transfers, the full history, the trading. The uh, There's a couple of other things we implement just to keep it all compliant, like how they're restricted shares. You can see all that on the blockchain. It shows you when they stop being restricted shares pursuant to certain company things happening. So it's, it's all, it's all documented and it's all done directly on the blockchain. And we just exited uh, this week, the stealth mode. We've kind of been operating under building out a lot of the infrastructure on the back end over the past number of years. And of course, since we got that first issuer, we've talked to 50 public American CFOs and all of them share the sentiments that both of you do in that. Uh, at least from what I could tell based off of the public facing materials I've seen on YDRS, the idea that, you know, the the industry is unbelievably bad. And even what you were mentioning earlier, Chai, is about the interface with computer share. It's, it's just awful uh, to to put it mildly. And there is no chance uh, based off of extensive internal discovery and, and research. There's just no chance that that is the future of capital markets. And so we're currently building out two things. First is the app for investors. So think of it like Robinhood, but there's no Robinhood. Okay. You can do the trades, but it's directly with other investors. And this is all documented on our website. It doesn't go through any middleman. It uses the blockchain tech to go directly between both of you, the orders, the bids, the asks. they're all stored on the blockchain. There is no middleman. The settlement happens. The chain matches them instantly through a public protocol that's been in existence since 2015. And then on the issuer side, we're building out a portal for them to go and look and manage all their stock. Uh, We just have a lot of development needs at the moment. And that's sort of where we're at building out the infrastructure. The public companies we talked to really need the, at least the issuer side of that infrastructure for the UI, at least. They need the UI to be kind of fully built out. So that's why we're starting now with some smaller private issuers as beta clients mm-hmm. to really build out a lot of technology and also use their shareholder data, the transfers, all the blockchain data is really useful in building out the UI, but the back end of it is all executed. You can look at it today. You can do a stock trades for today. You can, there's trading demos on there that nobody can trade their shares yet. Cause the company just onboarded. So it's going to be a year until they're unrestricted securities. Um, but, yeah, you can look at all of it today functioning based off of the, the work that we've done over the past number of years.
0: That's, that is amazing. The fact that That's it's, yeah, good. possible. Because, <laughs> like... Uh like in you know, nineteen sixty eight, us a few years ago were were just thinking that all this is a pipe dream. Uh and maybe one day our, our children will benefit from this. <laughs> but uh I, so, yeah, amazing to hear it's like possible and happening right now. And what you were saying as well about um the the ledger is publicly viewable right now, but the identities of the shareholders are protected because I I guess it's just their wallet address or something like that or something similar that is linked to their holdings so it's mm-hmm. kind of like unless you know their exact wallet address uh then you don't know who's who uh, it's kind of like a semi encrypted uh privacy filter uh like because we we had this experience of people going to view a stock ledger or well, a stockholder list which is a snapshot of the ledger representing uh voting rights um people went to see that and and it surprised people that their their name and address was visible to to other shareholders if they went to visit it um and that part and parcel of this being uh like having your name registered you are registered on this ledger which is somewhat public but um it would there for for your current client is there like just this one ledger with the blockchain information or is there like a second ledger with all that um, sensitive information on as well.
2: Yeah, of course, Vivit. So we are currently going through the AWS Startup Accelerator. We've been using AWS for a number of years now. And basically, the way it looks on the tax reporting, on the record keeping, and on the actual shareholder list that you need to deliver to the issuer so that they can do things like their annual meeting where they have to show it off, for example, in Delaware. The way it works is it's on the chain is your public key. As it sounds, you're familiar with some basic cryptography, so good for you guys. Uh, we give everybody account numbers that are random nine digits of uh, base 32, so just numbers and letters, and that maps to their public key. So it's it's just a little bit easier to transfer shares to people you know and to have people send you shares. Uh, but that's the only thing that's on chain, aside from obviously the the whole transaction history of the stock, because all the stock management's on chain. Um, and so on our side of things, we have a, a database in AWS that maps the public keys to the actual personal information. You go through a whole KYC, AML process, all the good things that you would expect for opening an investment account. And we actually onboard investors from over 200 countries and territories. So we really the can open up an investment account for anyone that it would legally be available to by current U.S. regulations. And, for reporting, all we do is observe the exact same blockchain that everybody else sees, and then we just resolve the public keys to the actual personal information. And we didn't bring it up, Bibic, but something of importance here that we sort of mentioned in earnest early on is that one of our, one of our very early advisors was a top cybersecurity expert. He actually built intercontinental exchanges entire cybersecurity program from scratch and ran it from 20 years based off his experience starting an ISP in the 90s. And he said something one day that really, that really stuck to me. He said that most people have a username and a password that they log into things with and then they have a really good second factor like a Google Authenticator. And he said to me that the username and the password are very easy, very susceptible to attack. But the two factor, the second factor is unbelievably strong. And so it follows that if you just use the second factor, you would have great security. And that is the mentality and approach that we've taken, documented and used to create the system. So the investors, they all have what you would consider as a standard crypto wallet where they have their backup phrase, their private key, their secret phrase, whatever you want to call the secret key, the mathematical secret to resolve, you know, whatever the blockchain protocol is for the public key, right? Uh, and that's all stored on your end. So when you open an account, you just write down the secret, uh, you write down the backup phrase, if you're familiar with that terminology. It's just a list. You just write down a list of random words, and you never share that with anyone. And that is what lets you trade. That's what verifies on the blockchain. This is, you know, if you're not familiar, I'm sure probably most of you guys are familiar. But if you're not familiar, that's what lets you Obviously have cryptographic security and we don't store that. That's really important thing here is it is non-custodial. And so it's the investors holding their assets. They have total control over their assets. So we can't just pretend, you know, if, if someone owns 10% of the company, we can't just forge their proxy vote. For instance, proxy votes are done on the blockchain. We can't just forge a signature on their proxy vote and put it into the chain. It just, it, it's not, it's not possible, right? Uh, all we have is that public key. And then obviously there are some processes in place if they need, if they lose that, if they lose that secret phrase that to recover the account and to update the public key and things like that. Does that answer? Does that make sense, Bibek and Chives?
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. Oh, absolutely, man. I'm
1: following you 100% and, and speaking for me here, I, I come from a crypto background before getting into the DRS and everything you're talking about is like uh, the dream best case outcome as far as what we could see happen in the market. So I uh, hope you don't mind this being presumptuous, but what I'd really love is some future Wednesday where you're available. Maybe we can highlight <laughs> these with you uh, in much more detail, go over this and get into much more nitty gritty. Cause I have other questions. I mean, but my goodness hearing the wallets are uh self custodial, the private keys, uh, are maintained by the investors. I mean this right here uh is exactly what I would want for investor sovereignty. So thank you again for stopping by.
2: And we can hundred percent work that out. I think Bibic has my information. Um I have a proposition for both of you today. Go on. <laughs> there was recently an SEC publication. They are modernizing. If you're familiar with Edgar, it's the system that all these companies, all these issuers go through to report their annual reports, their quarterly reports, so all the information about when their insiders are trading. It's it's unbelievably important. It is a it is one of the most critical things. It's it's how every company interfaces with the SEC and. That includes international issuers. Uh, so that includes companies that want to sell their shares in the United States. They want to register their offerings and have U.S. investors, which is going to be pretty much from extensive due diligence. Every company on the planet wants access to the richest, most developed, most advanced capital market on the planet. They're all going through this system called Edgar. But if you log into Edgar today, it's, it's like computer share. Okay. It's something out of the eighties. It's, it's, it's bad. Um, It's not, I mean, it works and it's good and it does what it needs to do, but, but it is challenging. For instance, with our first client, when they had to go through the SEC registration process through Edgar, and that's the process that you use to get a CIK, if you're familiar, perhaps is, I saw it in some of your, your documents that it's just the, the number that never changes that the SEC uses to identify a company. So just to go through that process, the most simple thing that you can do on Edgar, it's it's, it's the, the page says it takes 15 minutes. It's the most simple form that they have. Just to do that, the CFO of that company told us it was an undue burden for them. And given that they were a smaller issuer, they didn't have outside legal counsel or securities corp, anyone to help them with that. And they actually had us do it as part of our transfer agent services arrangement. That just shows that there needs to be a better way to do this. And there is a better way to do this. So we've been working since day one on trading. And what that means for companies is reporting uh, because there's trading on the actual company books directly with investors. That means reporting that trading through, if you're familiar with rule 144 section 16 reports, which are going to be those form fours when the insiders in the company trade, that all goes through Edgar. Uh, if there's any questions there, do let me know uh that is kind of just a general quick summary of what edgar is now there's yeah,
0: recent we, we use edgar pretty frequently for do researching you? like yeah because you know this, this is all. where all the transfer agent information is kept and investor relation and sometimes drs number reporting um and hopefully more so in the future but yeah especially when it comes to um uh, GameStop people are very obsessed because the, the insiders just keep buying shares over and over again. So, yeah. like, there's a new form four. There's a new form four. Uh, so yeah, yeah. And CIK numbers as well. We use those as part of the YDRS database because like yeah, you say. The, the, it's an immutable number. They're not changing that. Even if the QSIP changes or the company name changes, that CIK stays the same. So yeah, yeah. we
1: use the CIK for internal tracking kind of uh, on the back end for that reason. But I mean, to add benefit, I'll say if you already know what you're looking for, if you already know what filing you want or vaguely when it might have been from, it's very easy to pull it up. If you only have a slight idea of what you're looking for, it's practically impossible to find anything. So um, that's yeah. a double-edged sword of as I guess is what is how I'd describe it.
0: It's it's a far cry from a from a proper search engine that's for sure.
2: <laughs> I'd love to discuss that a little more with you but uh, the searching functionality and and exactly what's hard to find. But um I completely agree with you. The investor facing side is really great. Uh, but I'm talking, so what I'm, I'm talking about is the, the issuer facing side. So the companies, right? The ones that actually create these opportunities for us to invest and in, build all these jobs and, and, you know, econ- economic growth and development. Uh, and for them it's extremely difficult. And so usually what that means, like I said, we talked to many public companies and they hire law firms to do this for them just to log in with their information and to submit these filings and they'll they'll spend like 2 to 6 hours a week just doing the they call it edgarization this this routine reporting so that investors like us can see the information as they should uh and it's just a huge waste of time money resources that should be put towards the company's mission so that they can benefit investors by creating more value
1: I see where you're going so the as part of the block transfer offering uh, and the homogenation and on-chain viability of all these trades, getting that kind of export is probably a lot more easy for you.
2: Much, much easier. And what we've been building since day one is actually automating the reporting because it's all immutable data that you have a complete and total reference to we've been doing that if you some of de- is this thing called selenium it's like a web a web simulator where you kind of like simulate a website and you go in you log in and you pass things in manually and it's it's a very bad way to do development it, it seems maybe you two are familiar with that and and it's just the way it's had to be to if you wanted to automate any of this, because it's all particular it's it's all pretty simple to uh to automate. You know, I, I bought this many shares, okay, I report that. You know, it's not like the most complex thing. And we also want to make it easier for companies to issue stock because issuing is what facilitates capital formation. And especially for smaller companies that are just starting out. That initial hurdle of having to go into EDGAR and file the thing called Form D that you need to file for a vast bulk of the current markets private offerings to, to pro to go and do that is a ton of work and we want to automate all of it so it's right in the product and you just press a button and it happens and it's like magic. And if uh, does that make sense? Are you guys developers or do you have a much of a technical background?
1: No, us oh, not developers. I mean,
2: I'm following you at least. Okay,
0: but
1: not developers. I appreciate your slow, you know, making sure though, to keep things at a fairly based level, because I'm sure a lot of our audience is not only very curious and interested in what you're talking about, but, uh, you know, who knows what the average familiarity is and, and will be. So you're, you're doing fantastic here.
0: Yeah. It's much appreciated from me. I like, I, I know basic HTML coding for back from <laughs> my space days, but that's, about that's my limit. Um, but, yeah, we've got some very helpful coders uh, who, who help uh, us out, especially with the Lemmy instance. That's that's a lot of knowledge that goes into that, that goes way over my head. Uh, but, yeah, appreciate everything you're breaking down for sure.
2: Certainly, Vivek, and, and that's really interesting to hear and 100% chive. So I'll keep it pretty high level then. This new proposition is a game changer. It is a groundbreaker that nobody is talking about because everybody in the current system profits from the complexities, from the share reconciling, from everything being in this one, you know, this one guy owns everything and everyone has to go through this system with them. And there's this whole process around it. As you guys know firsthand, the complexity is what allows these brokers to exist today because it's so difficult for investors, you and I, to go and actually just... Because something not a lot of people understand or or are familiar with, they don't know that going public really just means you file a specific form with the SEC on Edgar, and they approve it. And the whole... the, the, The securities exchange, the stock market, the bank that makes an unbelievable amount of money on the initial day of trading. That's all just fluff. That's all extra. That's all industry built on top of these, this monopoly basically on capital, which is what we have here at the depository trust is you have to go through them. If you're going to raise a significant sum of funds and it's really just paperwork with the sec. And that's what's at stake here because that paperwork all goes through Edgar and, and, the more we can let companies access Edgar efficiently without spending 15 grand, which is a routine thing to pay for something called Edgarization. It's when you have a, an accounting firm go and take your documents and convert them to Edgar, put them on Edgar. It's, it's just a huge problem and it's unbelievably ridiculous. And so the SEC is extremely smart and this new proposal they have introduces programmatic access to edgar so that developers like us can build systems interfacing with edgar through machines that automate all these processes that you normally have to go and do manually with a human being
0: so is that sort of like um giving being given access to the api because uh, that—that's my level of understanding. Like Reddit had an API thing where people could plug in and make apps related to it, and then they changed that and pissed off a lot of people like me who are <laughs> using third-party apps.
2: Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: is it—is it that kind of thing then, where they're giving you that level of access to be able to like plug in whatever you want and build on it?
2: That's exactly what it is, Bibb. They're introducing an API for Edgar, and it will change the industry it will do so much to decrease the cost for a company to raise money to find investors and to really build something
0: incredible and and
2: yeah go ahead
0: reduce friction in in releasing information which is what we're all about we want that juicy data Uh, and i imagine it will allow for more streams of data to be plugged into filings because as we've seen from looking through so many from so many different companies, the, the, there are obvious certain things they have to include. But beyond that, it's, it's kind of make it up as you go. Like we've now got a few companies who are reporting DRS numbers, but no other company is. And that's like not it's really commented on by the SEC or anything like that. <laughs> and that's, yeah, it would be amazing. Um, for Yeah. People to be able to go, Oh yeah, we can include this as well. Cause all of this information is not only vital for for the company and its investors, but for the wider market to better understand, you know, the the fundamentals of that company. So yeah, we're we're all for that for sure. Um, so is this a new a new proposal you were saying?
2: Yes, I learned about this proposal yesterday, and the comment period for it ends. Tuesday I'm writing a comment letter with advice from the rest of uh, the everyone and the comment letter is going to go into basically the all the development things that there there are some big problems with it technically. And if you want to dive into those by all means, but there there's like not the right level of access controls is the high level of it. Like it's very over permission. You would have to give somebody permission to do anything for you when you shouldn't have to. And, and there's a lot of other things. Um, and this was confirmed yesterday on a call at 439 with the development team. And I was wondering If you would like, I understand that the anonymity is a fairly large, from what I can tell, based on the public-facing material, a fairly large uh, factor for YDRS, and I I do commend you very much on delivering that very detailed and and well-done information packet based on a lot of really incredible work from Dr. Trimbath. But I know sometimes it can be challenging, as we referenced earlier with the I'm sorry, not earlier. It was in a different podcast, but the, you know, the, the shareholder proposal was releasing your full name and all that. And I want to extend an offer to your team. I'll give you an opportunity. If you'd like to put something on file with the SEC, here's the thing with this comment period. Like I said, it's almost over and there are barely any comments on this submission because nobody wants to bring it to light because it would, in theory, automate their entire functions as law firms or lawyers or, you know, whatever, whoever it is, right? And so there's no coverage on this development because there are an unbelievably small amount of talented developers doing, doing something that, that doesn't benefit a financial intermediary in the current system. And the intermediaries, as we mentioned, don't want to automate or make this more efficient. And so this proposal came out and there are almost no comments on it. And the ones that are, there's just, there's really nobody supporting it. There's no one backing it. And there's no one pointing out a lot of these deep technical flaws that need to get fixed by the adopting release. And so that's why I started writing a comment letter. And I wanted to give you two or the whole team, however it is you want to structure it, a chance to get on the SEC's radar again, because... There are so few commenters on this. This really is a chance, if you'd like, to have a direct line of access to the SEC's development team, their deep internal staff, and have them really look over and understand the ideologies and and big, big problems that exist in the current system that you've so eloquently detailed in very good language for the everyday investor through YDRS. Uh not sure. Does that make sense? Are you guys familiar with SEC comment letters?
0: Oh yeah, um, yeah. Certainly we, even, uh, we we have a prototype tool on the on YDRS uh, for comment letters. And uh-huh. we were forming basically like um an auto generated letter. You can pick points that you found important about the specific proposal or ruling, all that kind of stuff. But then yeah, we, we started taking on more other commitments and um Projects and stuff uh, for the efforts, so it's fallen by the wayside a bit, but yeah. yeah that was, that up-
1: was built during the time last year when there were, you know, practically a new proposal every other week and we were, uh, you know, kind of really keeping on top of, of that, but then that slowed and I'm I'm very excited to hear about this proposal. I'm the guess that, I mean, I certainly had not heard about it. I'm not sure how long this comment window has been open or that we'd have enough time to support it on the website, but what we can certainly do is, you know, do our own due diligence immediately following this spread it to our community. We've got several different communities of over a thousand members, and I'm sure that there are individuals within them that are going to be curious to submit their own comments as we've seen with, uh, with other proposals. And either way, I'm certainly personally interested in uh, increasing the accessibility of uh systems, which are overly complicated. Uh, and as you've, Mentioned earlier as we consistently rally on about uh, the complication is a pressure point where uh, monopolies of information are able to repetitively profit in an undue fashion that is grossly unfair. And so uh, yeah, I'm certainly interested to uh, look more into that. Uh, I'm not sure how the, uh, how much this uh, potential API adjustment to Edgar, uh, how that's going to directly relate to DRS or the other uh sorts of things that we've built uh, I don't know that we'd really need to include those in a letter but certain but off to see the language of the proposal and what seems uh you know relevant to include but of course that's going to be up to the individuals choosing to submit comments and on the subject of transparency just before uh if, before I forget I want to mention for anyone unaware that your email that you use to submit the comments uh any name that you sign it with uh the full contents of your comment will be uh, publicly available for review following the conclusion of the comment period on the SEC's website. So if you are conscious about that, it's something to be aware of.
2: Yes, Chives, that's why I wanted to reach out and just offer that if anybody wants to do a comment anonymously, that we would be happy to add it as an addendum to our comment, and it would just have our information
0: on it. That was all.
1: Ah, great thinking, great thinking.
0: Yeah, that's very kind of you. Um, what, what is the the name of this uh, proposal? Um, I want to try and get a link up in the nest for it, if I can.
2: Sure, I can put it in the chat.
0: Amazing, yeah. Now I can share it straight from that. Because, uh, yeah, I'm sure people want to take a look for themselves uh, but yeah Twitter takes forever to load oh here we go Ooh. right that is in the nest Um yeah and we'll include that in the show notes as well I mean probably by the time it's out on the podcast apps the, the comment period will be over but it's good to have it there for posterity Um
1: people can just review the comments that were submitted at that point. <laughs> so yep. if you want to see what John had to say, click the link in the show notes. <laughs>
0: but yeah, I think that it's it, nice to hear about something positive going on with a new proposal with the sec. Cause there, there has been so many and a lot of it it's, it's just, word vomit or diarrhea or whatever you want to call it and it's all legalese and it's really hard to pass through all of it sometimes even when like there are some people who dedicate their time to breaking it down and kind of giving you a more succinct uh like write-up of what's going on but even then it's still like so much to churn through um so i i'm not uh, as familiar with all the proposals but it's good to hear that they're looking and making that uh more accessible because making anything more accessible like that it leads to these yeah um oh god what's the word <laughs> this happens to me about once an episode where the, the word disappears from me but uh um but, yeah, the, these kind of improvements uh and, and stuff like that that anyone can bring. It's partly why we love Lemmy so much as a platform. The the kind of open source aspect of it means anyone can contribute a solution. Uh, and, yeah, big fans of GitHub, even though I have no idea what's going on in there at any of time. <laughs> but, uh, all that kind of stuff. It's the, yeah, that kind of... Uh, mentality, it's what web three and all that kind of stuff is all about. And, uh, for me, that's, that's the path I see taking us to that Star Trek utopia. I'm so, so desperate for that post scarcity world. So yeah, Absolutely. hopefully
1: an open API is also just going to help with further competition. I mean, I'm sure the platform that you're building, John, the services that you're trying to offer are going to be great. And, um, you know, if there are others who have great ideas, they can help enrich you They can try to compete with you and that's just going to make everyone better too as long as everyone can actually access it uh, instead of it being this insane uh, mishmash uh, mire of incredibly convoluted submission information and procedure so uh, the idea is very exciting to me I'm so glad that you brought it up thank you so much
0: yeah for sure this was a very pleasant turn for the the second half of today's episode And, and what I perfect episode for it to happen on as well the the kind of the birth of the central depository and and why it was necessary at the time and then the problems it leads to and uh, i think next episode we're going to dive into uh, our next article which uh, i've put up in the nest um which will go further into the dtcc as well as the dtc and um, the problems that were kind of generated from having a central depository and not a decentralized system, um, which, yeah, uh, now we have someone like John coming along and, and uh, providing a solution of a decentralized. uh I mean, uh, there was something um, recently that with the UK, they're, they're thinking of changing the, the UK shareholder framework. And uh, one option they looked at was a, uh, distributed ledger technology. Um, and I was about to say that's what you're doing, but I, I realized maybe that's not quite right because I'm not as familiar with the, the all the verbiage. Um, but is that the kind of thing? It's like a distributed ledger technology or is it more of a centralized yeah, I'm ledger?
2: I but... wanted
1: to ask John more questions or waiting until we can get him on for uh, a whole yeah, show. But I am, now that you've asked it, I, I want to know too. I mean, are you using a public chain? <laughs> for this? Or is it something of your own, uh, you know, uh, proprietary d- design?
2: Yeah. So I'll do this quickly. And then, like I said, happy to set something up. Uh, the, that's so important. And I am so glad that you, Chives and Bibic, know to ask that because most people don't know to ask that. And it is, I think, the most important part of everything that you're doing. Uh, There are certainly a number of competitors trying to do sort of kind of the accounting, but not the actual full transfer agent depository where it's the trading and the transfers and everything's all in one place and it's all super streamlined. That's a first. But there are certainly people trying to sort of kind of implement this kind of, as Bibic termed, distributed ledger technology. And the problem as Chives and as you guys understand at this point is how exactly do you do that is it private or is it public because a private blockchain is just a fancy name for an AWS database and there's actually a great example of one of the most recently you know they got 100 million venture a very well-funded agent recently bought Pacific and they use the kind of infrastructure that you reference Chai's, where it's it's all kind of private. And you have to go through still their central system. You have to go through their central accounts, their central books. And this particular entity also has the ability to trade. And the way they do it is the way that anybody would do it if you implement it through a private centralized DLT or or chain. And that's that they have an ATS, an alternative trading system on file with the SEC. An ATS is just like imagine a stock exchange, but like the little brother. Okay. It's just kind of like a simplified, less strict, less scrutinous version of a stock exchange. And that the, the reason that you build an ATS is so that you can charge something called maker taker fees. So I don't know exactly how familiar you guys are with market dynamics, but this is basically what powers payment for order flow. So payment for order flow. Basically what it is, is just the wholesaler that's actually buying up the, the flow, the buying up the trades, buying up the retail investors trades. They, they're paying for that. The, that money, that money comes from these things called ATSs and the ATSs will pay. I mean, aside from the spread, obviously everybody knows that they, they widen the spreads and they profit from the, the selling and the buying price and they net everything together and they make, you know, so and so many fractions of a penny every trade because of the the widening of the official spreads. And then they're able to kind of buy it from these off exchange dark sources at better prices than what you normally would be available to you. I'm assuming we're all pretty familiar with that. That's pretty, if if you're not entirely familiar with that, I would 100% recommend checking out our site. We have all that really well documented on our investors page, on our blog and on our yellow paper, But, uh, for the, for that whole process to work, uh, the ATS is, they pay these things called maker taker fees. So the long and short version of it is that the ATS is like an investment bank. Okay. More, like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, they have this server that they run. And every time that you do a limit order that doesn't immediately get filled, they'll pay you fractions and fractions of a penny and uh, this is generally how it works you can you can set it up differently but generally limit orders that don't immediately get filled you get paid fractions and fractions of a penny limit order just being at a specific price and then market orders that take that you know the execute against the limit orders that actually build up the order book and the liquidity in the market. The market orders that most people send, they're the ones that actually cost money. So normally if you send the market order, it's going to cost you money to execute. But the good news is it gets sent to this wholesaler and that intermediary along with like four others. It's a whole long chain. But basically they convert your, your uh, how do you say, just kind of your basic order into a entity that they can if they don't profit on it internally through, they don't profit at the broker level through internalization by matching it with another trade at the broker at a worse price than what you'd normally get with supply and demand matching themselves in a free market. And they actually do send it to that wholesaler that actually does pay them the PFOF that payment for order flow. Uh, then, then they're the ones that deal with all the nuances of, of connecting with all, you know, the dozens and dozens and dozens of these little ATS companies and all these different venues that you can go to for trading volume and all these different prices and liquidity. And they're the, they're like the HFTs, right. They would they'd make the money off of these small, small little differences here and there, here and there. And, and it might not look like much, but by the time you, you know, if you, you think about just even just a couple of trades a month. And by the time you you're saving every single year for your retirement, I mean, you guys more like more likely than not familiar with compound growth. Think about compound fees, okay? That's what that's what they're introducing here. It's a it's a pretty big chunk of your retirement by the end of by the end of everything. Um, so that's the that's like huge, and that's why I got into this space because we were paying a third of our trades at the fund to the broker, and that's. Unacceptable. And and maybe, you know, the normal investor doesn't deal with that because it's not as leverage and it's not as as exotic of an asset and they're they're dealing with more simple things, but it's 100% there to a lesser extent and it compounds. And it's, it's, and and then obviously there's the, there's the downward pressure of more shares being traded than exist. And obviously that deflates stock prices too. And that's all what you guys do an amazing job documenting that it's, it's uh, a lot of great stuff there. So, uh, that, so we don't want that. Okay. ATS bad. That particular competitor in the transfer agent space I was talking about, get this 1% trading fee. Okay. It's not good for investors. Uh, so what we've done is we've used the, so if you're familiar with crypto chimes, maybe you know Stellar. They launched publicly one month after Ethereum long time ago and have been one of the most innovative blockchains, public blockchains, distributed blockchains. They have an incredible distributed global consensus mechanism that is totally decentralized. And they have, like I said, from day one had this thing called a decentralized exchange. From what I can tell, they were, they were certainly one of the first, if not the inaugural decentralized exchange. And, Decentralized exchange just uses cryptography, just uses math. It uses this thing called atomic swaps that were invented by all these smart cryptographers long time ago. And all it means, all, all that, all the math, all the blockchain, all the crypto stuff, all the web three stuff means is that you can trade, you can put up a buy offer, I can put up a sell offer, and if they match, they will Your money goes from my account to yours. The shares go from your account to mine. That all happens automatically. It happens instantaneously and it happens with zero middlemen. And because it doesn't use middlemen, and we've talked, we've done extensive due diligence, we've talked with former and current SEC staff and also commissioners, there is certainly uh, a lot here. Normally that kind of function would be regulated, but because it doesn't use any middlemen, there's no central system it goes through, there's no one to regulate. There's no broker dealer. You need to, you need to have a broker to, to start an ATS. There's no broker to regulate. There is no, there's no intermediary that's actually performing that trade matching. It all happens on this decentralized system with this decentralized protocol that's existed for a decade that we had nothing to do with, right? And that's really the, the innovation here is you have all the decentralized aspects that Web3 ethos expects from these kinds of projects and you're just using that. To manage the shares, the actual shares on the books of the public company.
1: So, I mean, boy, and I'm just so curious to learn more. Um, maybe very briefly, I'm just so curious. So, uh, Stellar, I'm uh, a little familiar with though. Though, boy, I haven't thought about it in, in, in ages, um, to be honest with you. So, I um, have to imagine that it's really a tool, right? As you said, to uh, to help to track it. How are assets going to be denominated? Like, are they do they have to track one-to-one with Stellar on-chain? Are they measured in Stellar in any way or still paired with USD? I'm just kind of wondering about the uh, maximal impact. Like, would you be able hypothetically to, let's say, every issuer wanted to move onto your platform? Uh, is Stellar capable of that kind of growth when there's so many more issued shares that are traded than there are Stellars which are minted in the market?
2: Sure. So the, the way assets on Stellar work is you have just a public key and you can create any asset that you want with any code that you want. So we have a way, we have a process. It's all detailed in the patent. It's this whole system that we use where we just take the, the shares on the books and just make a token for it. And then that token is the representation. That is the shares that of the company. It, like that is what it is. Uh, so there's actually no cryptocurrency. And the cool thing about Stellar's unique consensus method is that there's no mining fees, there's no validator fees. Everything's nonprofit. Everything is uh, just processed by the institutions that run validators. a big decentralized network. You can look uh, at the current state of everyone, who's who. And right now they're doing about five. They can do. They're doing a thousand transactions a ledger, and sort of have the operational capacity around five. And they are the first blockchain implementing this thing called SpeedX. And without getting into the technical details of it, it's basically a way to use uh, multi-threading and parallelization, these computer concepts to speed up computing. Uh, it uses that to match trades at the validator level on the decentralized exchange. So that proposal in the works, it allows for the throughput, of basically the combined New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ at peak trading hours 24-7. It's pretty unbelievable.
1: Awesome. Thank you. I'm excited to read some more about that and to hear more about it in the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we should definitely uh, link up again for, yeah. We could, God, I think we could talk for days about, uh, well, market structure, transfer agents, stuff, um, Web3, crypto, uh all of it um but yeah i think um we, we've we uh, run over a little bit on our normal We d- we normally do about an hour but we, we've done an hour and a half now just uh because i mean it's been really like nice to be able to talk to someone who who knows what they're talking about and uh like from all aspects, it's very rare for us to come across someone, especially who knows about DRS stuff. And from the way you're talking, I think it, it, it's a uh, mutual feeling. Um, so yeah, it'd be great, great to do this again sometime. Um, I think, um, yeah, I'm not sure what, 100% sure what we're doing next week, but either talking about the DTC or uh, we may have a guest coming. Um well, who knows? To maybe John available. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, any Wednesday, let us know. <laughs> we'll be here. Um but yeah, I think uh that's uh that's a good note to end out on uh with the all the crypto talk, the the kind of future of where where central depositories might get dissolved into into something more decentralized. These central um, Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's it for this week's episode of Taking Stock, and um, I hope you everyone has a good week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks so much,
1: Pipik. Thanks,
0: John. Have a great week, everybody. Yeah, thank you, John, for joining us. It's been uh, a pleasure.
2: Certainly, great work, very good jives.
0: Our pleasure. All right. See you soon.